controversy begins to follow Jesus everywhere he goes. He's always running into people who want to oppose him uh, and have a sense of been scandalized by his interactions with people. And it begins here in Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. So let's read that text together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have it in front of you. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, I want you to imagine with me this morning for a moment that uh, perhaps one day during the week you wake up, right? You, you wake up with this, this, this kind of burning sensation uh, within your belly. And so you think maybe it was the burrito that you ate last night, right? Well, everything's well with your soul. It's not well with your stomach, okay? There's maybe that get a little bit of heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, and the other thing, right, that you take Pepto for. Uh, but things just don't feel right, right? Well, well maybe the, the bueno or the bell is just not settling very well in your abdomen, in your intestines. And so you think you have a really bad case of heartburn, so you choke down a couple of Tums on your way out the door to head on your commute to work, right? And on your way to the office, you begin to feel this kind of, this, this, pain that's shooting from your shoulder and radiating down into your arm. You think, well, maybe I just kind of slept on my pillow the wrong way last night. It'll kind of go away as the day goes on. And as you walk into the office from your car, you notice that you're a little bit more winded than usual, and you just cannot seem to catch your breath as you make your way up the stairwell, catch the elevator, right? You walk into the office, and you just feel really, really winded. So by noon, you begin to notice that there's a little bit of pain in your, in your chest. And so you do what any person who lives in a hyper-connected age would do, you go to www.google.com and you input all of those symptoms, right? And it seems like every article that shows up in your search results is all pointing to the same thing. It all contains these key words, signs of a heart attack. And so you become, become very sober in that moment. And you say to your coworkers, listen, there's a, there's a hospital five blocks from here. That's where I'm headed because an ambulance ride is going to cost more than my mortgage. And so I'm going to head over to the hospital and hope that I can make it before the big one hits. So on your way to the hospital, you call your family and say, meet me at the ER. And so on your way, you're thinking about all the things that you've done in life, all the things that you've yet to do in life, right? Your bucket list just flashes before your eyes. You think about your kids. You think about your grandkids if you've got those. You think about your friends. You think about your neighbors. You think about all those relationships, all the things that brought meaning and fulfillment and purpose to your life. So you pull into the, into the parking lot at the hospital, and you find the parking place closest to the emergency room doors. And you step out of, the, out of the car and you make your way into the emergency room, still very winded, grasping at your chest because now the pain has gotten more intense. And so as you, as you walk in, what you notice is that the, 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 the waiting room in the ER is full of people. There are people everywhere. But they're playing cards and checkers. Little domino action going on over the side. They've even got some, right, Xboxes and Nintendo Wii set up for the kids. And they're over there playing video games. 
And you notice there's only one person behind the desk at reception and one person in the triage area. And so as you walk up to the person at the reception desk, you begin to recount to them all the symptoms you've experienced from the time that you woke up that morning. Right? The heartburn, the, the, the shoulder pain, the chest pain, the windedness. Also, you begin to spill the fact that your family history is one that is associated with all kinds of heart issues. But before you can recount every aunt and uncle who's had heart attacks over the course of their lives, they abruptly cut you off and they begin to inform you right that this particular er because what you is conspicuously absent is people with like lacerations traumatic injuries there's nobody sitting in the waiting room you're like running a fever right with huddled in coats okay there's, you don't see any of that but what they inform you is that this er is not for those who are sick but for those who are well Right? This, that's what this emergency room is for. And so they tell you, listen, let us escort you back outside of the curb. And as soon as your symptoms subside, you're welcome to come back in, right? Partake in the all-you-can-eat buffet. You can get a cup of coffee and play some chess. Right? You, you would be blown away, right? You'd have a medical lawsuit on your hands, by the way, as well, I would imagine. Okay, to put it simply... Right? They are a place not where sick people can get well, but a place where well people can gather to be away from sickness. That's that particular ER. And listen, I wonder how many people in our culture have this impression of Jesus because of their interaction with the church. I wonder how many people refuse to flee to Jesus, fly to Jesus in their hour of need, in their moment of sickness, when their souls are shattered and broken, whenever their hearts are about to be arrested by sin because of their interaction with the church. They have an impression of Jesus because of what they've seen from the church. Maybe they've known people who, whenever their marriages were beginning to fall apart and unravel at the seams, they were beat up by the church rather than blessed by them. Or whenever their kids went off the rails... Maybe they received more criticism from the church for what they didn't do rather than compassion from the church that would walk alongside of them in the midst of their sorrow and pain. Or maybe as they wrestled with sin in their own lives and sought to put it to death rather than being lovingly pastored, right? they were sucker punched in the mouth. And so they had this impression of Jesus because of their interaction with the church. But this text teaches us something about Jesus, right? We've been looking at Jesus all throughout Mark's gospel so far, seeing who he is, getting a vision for who Jesus is. And one of the things that we see in this text is this, is that paramount to Jesus' public ministry, the very center of it. And listen, I find this very interesting because it wasn't Jesus' private ministry. He wasn't kind of in back alleys hanging out with these folks, okay? He was front and center in front of everyone, Jesus not only spent time with those who were sick, but He also sought them out. He pursued them. He went after them. He called them. And He opened His life up to them. Not in private, but in very public places. Which led one author, um, one, one old hymn writer back in 1910, a guy by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman, to write these words. He says, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. 
And then in the chorus, she says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. See, this text teaches us that this Jesus that we've been looking at through Mark's Gospel, this Jesus who is the true Son of God, the true King of all creation, this Jesus who is high and holy, who has authority over all things, including sin and sickness, and those who are sinister, demons. He has authority over all of that. This high and holy anointed one of God, He is a friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. Let me say it again, a friend of sinners. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I, for one, am grateful that he was a friend of this sinner. Because I, like Paul, could recount story after story in my life that could testify to you and prove to you that I, not you, am the chief of sinners. And I'm thankful that he's a friend of mine. So what do we learn about Jesus in this text? I want to look at a few things. First of all, you see that Jesus befriended. He befriended the unrighteous. He befriended them. Listen, in verse 14, Jesus calls a man named Levi. Now, listen, Levi is, shows up in other places in the gospel accounts, being referred to as a guy by the name of Matthew as well. The same way that Simon was referred to as Peter and Cephas, Levi is more than likely another name for Matthew. And so he's sitting at a tax collector booth. And I want you to notice his response whenever Jesus says, come and follow me. In other words, uproot yourself and come after me. Look at what he does. It says, and he rose and followed him. Now, we might just attribute this to Mark's writing style because remember we said at the very beginning of this study that Mark is like a writing an action movie. Right? He's always moving from place to place, Jesus is. There's always something going on. Right? It's not one of those long developing plot stories that takes forever to figure out what's happening and it just has all these really l- periods of the movie where you just want to fall asleep and then it gets really good at the end. That's not what's going on in Mark's gospel. There's constant movement, constant action. So you might attribute it to Mark's writing style that he's just like, yeah, he called him, and then Levi went home, and he thought about it for a while. He asked a few of his close friends, hey, should I go follow this guy? And they said, yes, and so he thought about it for a month, and then he came back and followed him. No, I think immediately he rises and he follows Jesus. So why would he, in that moment, immediately rise up and follow Jesus, who was teaching And I think the reason that he does so is because here's a Jewish rabbi calling a most unlikely candidate to follow him, to be one of his closest disciples, because Levi would have been a socially and spiritual outcast in his day. He'd have been somebody on the fringes of Jewish society because he was a tax collector. And tax collectors were despised and hated by the Jews for a host of reasons. Let me run down a few of them with you this morning. First of all, Right? Tax collectors were fundamentally a reminder of Roman rule over the Jewish people. Right? There was foreign occupation in their land. Okay? Tax collectors were not like IRS agents today. You may not like an IRS agent. Okay? All right? I just I filed an extension back in April, took care of my business here in October, had to pay some money into the government. Right? And so the IRS, we go, they're a necessary evil. Okay? But tax collectors in those days were a reminder that, the, that Israel was not an autonomous nation, that they were foreign occupiers, they were governed by foreign rule, they were oppressed by a foreign people, that they had to submit to and pay taxes to Caesar. 
Okay? Second of all, these land and poll taxes that were collected, they were collected by Roman employees, right? But the taxes on transported goods, so if you were sending grain, if you were sending fish, if you were sending textiles, if you were sending baskets, if you were sending anything, transporting it from one area to another, they would collect taxes on that as well. Similar like a sales tax in our day or an import-export tax in our day, right? And so the way that these tax collectors made money was by saying, okay, here's what Rome requires. It'd be like looking at the sales tax in our day and going, okay, the state of Texas collects eight point, what, eight, eight and a quarter percent of our sales at Target and Walmart and, right, Chili's and Applebee's, wherever we go. Right, there's 8.25% collected on the sales of goods in our community. And so a tax collector would go, okay, that's what I have to give to Rome. So if I'm going to make any money off of this transaction, off of these people who are transporting these goods, I'm going to have to inflate the tax rate in order to pad my own pockets. And so they would say, okay, 8.25%, so I'll charge them 12% or 15%. And listen, there was no regulation on this inflation, so they could have charged whatever they wanted. Okay, and so that's how they made money, right? Manipulating, deceiving, essentially robbing from their own countrymen. Because many of these people who collected these local taxes, they were not Romans, they were not Gentiles, they were ethnic Jews who were not ethical Jews because they didn't keep the law. And so they were despised by their fellow countrymen. Listen, the rabbinic literature of the day contained these scathing judgments of tax collectors. They lumped them together with thieves and murderers. Right? So that was the category of people that they fell within. Those were the folks they ran with. So a Jew who collected taxes, listen, they'd be disqualified from being a judge or a witness in the court system. They'd be expelled from the synagogue where every Jew was supposed to go to hear God's word read and taught. And they were a cause of disgrace to their families. Their families oftentimes would shun them, if not disown them, because of their profession and the way in which they conducted and operated in that profession. See, the touch of a tax collector, it so, went so far as if a tax collector came to your house and knocked on your door, your house was considered unclean. Their presence, their touch made you unclean. Jews were even forbidden from receiving money and alms from a tax collector. So they want to give money to charity, right? They want to get their tax deduction. <laughs> they want to give some money to charity. You can't even receive what they give because that money came from ill-gotten gains. It was a requirement given. Perhaps the ultimate example of the disdain toward tax collectors was the fact that Jews could lie to them without impunity. In other words, it was okay. In fact, encouraged by the rabbis. And here's the, here's the kicker, that the two schools of rabbinic thought in Jesus' day, the conservative, we might call it the conservative view and the liberal view, right, they both agreed you get a lot of tax collectors when they agreed on hardly anything else. That's how much tax collectors were hated and despised by their fellow countrymen. And here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. Not only does he associate with them, but he invites one of them to come and be a disciple, to come and learn from him, to come and follow him. It would have been perhaps, it would have been perhaps less offensive for Jesus to touch a leper than it would have been to dine with a tax collector. And yet here he is, befriending them, pursuing them. Because at least the leper's condition wasn't chosen while the tax collector's was. But notice he doesn't stop with just Levi. With one. Because the text tells us he, he went into the house and he hosted them. 
he hosted, and there were many tax collectors who followed him. Okay, so he's, he's reclining at table, right, with tax collectors and sinners. Now, that word sinners in the text, it, 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 it set against its Old Testament backdrop. In the Psalms, you read about this category of people called the wicked. And that's what they would have been thinking in their day whenever they used that term sinner. It would have been referred to people like moneylenders, people with shady business practice, gamblers, thieves, shepherds, the violent, and of course, tax collectors. Some of them were criminal elements, while some of them were just too busy or too poor in order to give attention to God's law, in order to give attention to God's word. And so they were deemed to be unclean, they were deemed to be unrighteous, they were deemed to be unholy. They were those who were considered to be undeserving of the love of God unrighteous and here Jesus is befriending them pursuing them inviting them in to fellowship listen when you had table fellowship with someone in the ancient world it was more than sharing a meal it was opening your life to them inviting them in to be close to be close so here you have Jesus true king of all creation, the true son of God, the one who is anointed the Christ, and he's pursuing and befriending those who are socially and spiritually deemed to be unworthy and deemed to be unclean and deemed to be unrighteous and deemed to be unholy. He's a friend of sinners. Now listen, church, one of the things that teaches us is this. that There is no one who is beyond grace of God. And listen, for you and I, we've got to, if we're going to be a people whose lives are shaped by the message and mission of Jesus, we've got to come to believe that. There's no one beyond grace. There is no one beyond Jesus' ability to pursue and to change and to transform their lives. Listen, we could, I hope we could this morning testify to the fact that we ourselves might have deemed ourselves to be beyond God's grace, but God overthrew our own deeming of ourselves. Listen, and that's good news for me. I hope it's good news for you. There's no one beyond His grace. Not the porn addict or the prisoner. They're not beyond His grace. Not the adulterer or the cheater or the liar. They are not beyond the grace of God. The abuser or the addict. Someone who makes destructive choices in their life and destroys the very temple that God has given them. They are not beyond the grace of God. Listen, those who are cheats and gossips, abusers, they are not beyond the grace of God. There is no one who's beyond His grace. Do you believe that? Listen, the only way you'll believe that is if you believe that about yourself first. So the second thing that we're reminded about this from this text is this. Not only does he befriend the unrighteous, but I want you to know there's a second class of people that the Bible says that Jesus befriends, and is that he befriends the self-righteous. He befriends the self-righteous. Look, in the text, as we read about uh, Jesus and, 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 and dining with these tax collectors and sinners, the scribes of the Pharisees, they come to Jesus in verse 16, and they ask Him why He's eating with this category of people. Right? Because they're trying to reconcile in their minds this contrast between righteous and unrighteous, clean and unclean, holy and unholy. 
probably the reason to a large degree they were trying to reconcile this difference in their minds was because they deemed themselves to be deserving because they knew and kept the law and the layers of tradition associated with the law. Right? They were deserving. They were worthy. Those were undeserving. Those were unworthy. Jesus, why are you dining with all the really bad people when all the really good people are over here? It would make sense, Jesus, if you're the anointed one, that you'd be hanging out with all the really good people. But Jesus says, I've come other places in the gospel accounts to seek and save that which was lost. Here he says, I've come not because those who are well need an emergency room and a physician, but because those who are sick are the ones who need me the most. And so Jesus, the, are, are these scribes and Pharisees, listen, they, they had categorized and classified all the commandments of the Old Testament. They layered in their interpretation and traditions so they wouldn't even come close to violating a command of God. Okay? So if the command said, right, keep the Sabbath... They're like, oh man, we, we got to create all of these boundaries around what it means to keep the Sabbath. So to keep the Sabbath means I can't do, take these many steps, I can't go this far outside my house, I can't lift over this many pounds, I can't cook, I can't cook this meal, right? I can't do any of these things. So they layered all these traditions on top of the command, and they not only had memorized all the commands, but they knew all the traditions, and they kept all of them very scrupulously. So they deemed themselves to be worthy of God's love of a relationship with God. But listen, I want you to know that while Jesus befriended the unrighteous, He also came to befriend and pursue the self-righteous. You see it throughout, throughout the New Testament and perhaps no clearer place than with the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, listen, if anybody had reason for putting confidence that they were deserving of God's affection. They were deserving of God's love. If anybody had reason for putting confidence in what they could do, it was me. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision, he says, about those who are Christians, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if you thought you were good, I was great. <laughs> I did it better than you did, just so you know. Listen to what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal that persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." Rubbish, in my translation, is the politically correct way of talking about feces. All right? Dung. Poop. If you have little kids running around the house, I go poo-poo, right? That's what he says. That's what he compares it to. All of his good works, he says, are like feces in the field compared to this great treasure that I found in Jesus. Because listen, in the same way that Jesus 
went to Levi and said, Levi, come follow me. You know what he does with the Apostle Paul? Paul's life is dead set on destroying the work of Jesus through the work of the church. And Jesus doesn't wait for Paul to come to him. What does he do? He meets Paul on the road to Damascus. He blinds him. Scales come over his eyes. He says, why are you persecuting me, Saul, Saul? And when Paul has his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, he becomes a transformed man as he meets Jesus, not having a righteousness based on the works of the law any longer, but now based upon what God had done for him in the person of Christ. So in the same way that he pursued the unrighteous social and spiritual outcast, listen, he's also pursuing the self-righteous, those who were socially and spiritually within the in-crowd of his day. So Jesus, listen, he pursues both. He befriends both. And I wonder how many of us that would be our story this morning. Perhaps you grew up in the church. Perhaps you've crossed all the T's. You've dotted all the I's. And whenever you look back on your life, you don't have this dramatic conversion experience from addiction, right? You don't have this dramatic conversion experience from this rebellion that was manifest in very external and outward ways. But maybe your story is that you have a conversion from a rebellion that was manifest in a very internal way. Because you as a very self-righteous individual, listen, you thought you were a taxpayer. And that if you paid in enough every pay period, that eventually when the time came to file your return, God would be obligated, right, to give you something back. But listen, I, I, let me say it as strongly as I possible can and do so from the authority of the Bible. That's a That's a... Uh, phrase borrowed from the great David Martin Lloyd-Jones. But what, what, what that means is this, is if we're truly Christians, we don't come before God with our pedigree, our personality, or our popularity. You know that? You don't come before God with your family of origin or how winsome or attractive you are. You don't come before God and hold up the color of your skin or the location of your home, your zip code, or your socioeconomic class. You don't come before God and hold up your American citizenship thinking that somehow that makes you a Christian. Or the fact that you're a Texan. Listen, some of you weren't born here, and I know you got here as fast as you could, but listen, it doesn't make you a Christian. Do you know that? We don't depend on our behavior, our moral conduct, our good deeds. We don't boast about our education that we've received, the schools we attended, the degrees on our wall. We don't trust in the least in the life and that we lived in the past, that we're trying to live in the present, or that we hope to live in the future. We don't bring pockets full of money before God to somehow bribe Him the money we've inherited or earned. We don't hold up faithful church attendants or well-adjusted children that we've raised and then are now out of the nest and on their own. We don't bring any of that before God. Rather, we look at all of that and we count it as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus of our, our Lord and be found in Him, having not a righteousness of our own, but one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. I think I'm alone this morning, but that's okay. Listen, no one enters the kingdom with their head held high, but with their head bowed low, with their hands empty, begging out of spiritual poverty, 
for the grace of God to be manifest in their life as well. Listen, it's like the, uh, I, I used this illust- uh, illustration from the do- Voyage of the Dawn Treader a couple of weeks ago about Eustace. There's another one at the very end of that story. There's a little mouse in the Chronicles of Narnia. His name is Reepicheep, right? right? And he's a real brave and valiant mouse. He's got a little sword. He loves to fight. He'll take on any foe, no matter how big they are, okay? And so Reepicheep, as he comes, they come to the end of the story in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, what you see is that Reepicheep says he's always dreamed of seeing Aslan's country. Right? And which in, in, the, in the, the, the Chronicles represents, this, represents heaven. A place in which he would spend eternity. But he knew that he wasn't qualified in and of himself to lay eyes on it. And listen to what he says. He says, he walks toward Aslan and he took off his golden band from around his ears. And he says, your eminence... Reepicheep stared with a bow. Ever since I can remember, I have dreamt of seeing your country. I have many great adventures in this world, but nothing has dampened that yearning. And then he says this, I know I am hardly worthy, but with your permission, I would lay down my sword for the joy of seeing your country with my own eyes. And Aslan, he responds, my country was made for noble hearts such as yours, no matter how small their bears may be. The reason he says his country is made for noble hearts like his is because he recognizes his own worthiness to be able to see it, to be able to experience it, to be able to know it. See, grace will never be grace in your life. It will never be grace in your life so long as you think that you're worthy of it. See, the self-righteous, the unrighteous, the unrighteous look in the mirror and they go, me? Right, a, a Christian? Somebody that Jesus would be me? No. You must be thinking of somebody else. But the self-righteous look in the mirror and go, of course me. Of course he would befriend me. Of course he would. I have so much to offer. Look at all that I've accomplished. Listen, the good news this morning is that Jesus befriends both. He befriends both. Pursues and he seeks both. So no matter where you are on that spectrum, no matter what your experience has been, whether you've been one that you look back on your life and it's filled with years of tears and regret and pain because of rebellious and outwardly sinful choices that you've made, I want you to know that Jesus this morning, that he's chasing you, that he's pursuing you, that he's coming after you, that he's aiming to befriend you. To know you. Or if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you look back on your years of experience and you say, Man, I've I've got some skins on the wall. I've got some trophies on the shelf. Done some pretty good things. I want you to know that Jesus is coming after you as well. In the same way that he came after the Apostle Paul, so that you would know the joy and freedom of having a righteousness not found in what you can do for him, but that is found in what he has already done and accomplished for you. So there's no one beyond the grace of God, not the unrighteous and not the self righteous. So finally, Listen, a part of what that means for us, not only is that we believe that no one's beyond grace, but we also befriend those who are sick ourselves. 
Listen, once again, Jesus is not hiding out in the forest, bringing all these people to him, but very publicly engaging, interacting with sinners. And listen, we're all, oftentimes we're so afraid. We're so afraid of being influenced. We're being, of being influenced by those who are worldly, we might say, or those who are sinners in our day and time. We're afraid of our reputation taking a hit. Right? That what we do, instead of insulating ourselves from worldly values and a vision for life, what we do is isolate ourselves from those people. There's a difference between insulation and isolation. Do you know that? Right? Insulation right, provides, like, I love the fact that um, my home has radiant barrier in the roof. Right? It reflects a lot of that, the, the harmful heat that just would build up in the attic and cause my AC to work overtime. And it's got like, so much like, just thick layers of insulation piled up in the attic to keep that heat that does, that does kind of just simmer there from soaking down into the dwelling structure. This, if, you, if, you, if you pulled back the, the, the walls on this structure, what you see is a bunch of foam insulation, sprayed foam insulation that keeps this place regulated really, really well. Right? I've done work in this attic before, and some of you have with me, right? In the middle of the summer, pulling cable to put all this AV stuff in. Right? And, and it, was, you get, it was actually bearable to work up there. Right? It might have been like 80 or 85 instead of 125 in the attic. Right? Because of the way that it's insulated. And listen, there's a, there is, for us as Christians, there's a, there's a need to insulate our lives with the Word of God and through prayer and through fellowship with other believers in the church that the, fo- the voices that are speaking into our lives and shaping us or other believers who have like minds, like values, a like vision for life. We need to be, have some insulation. But listen, what that doesn't mean is that we remove ourselves holy and fully and isolate ourselves from those who are sick because we're afraid of their communicable disease being transferred to us. I want to tell you something this morning, church. The disease they have is already in you. It's already in you. And so you insulate yourself. Right? From the influence of it. But you don't isolate yourself thinking that somehow you're going to catch what they have. In the same way that Jesus does. You befriend the addict. You befriend, as difficult as it may be, the abuser, the adulterer. You befriend them because you know that they are not beyond the grace of God because neither are you. And you learn to serve them. Right? You learn to serve them rather than shun them. So that's the best way to befriend someone. It's through serving them. What, what needs do you have? How can I show up in your hour of need? How can I help? Right, my wife and I have been watching this show on, um, on, on television that was released a couple of, uh, about a year ago. It's called uh, New Amsterdam. It tells the story of a physician who shows up in a public hospital who is trying to right the ship, essentially. Okay? This hospital doesn't have a great reputation in the community. His first day on the job, he fires the head of every department. <laughs> 
right? And he begins to install new heads of departments from people who actually wanted to practice holistic medicine again. And as he begins to install new leadership in all these heads of departments, he begins to go around. He doesn't just, he's the chief of medicine in the hospital, but he doesn't wear a suit and tie, he wears scrubs because he's a doctor. And listen, nor does he isolate himself from the patients. He goes around, he still sees patients. And as he goes around to see sees patients, he becomes, he becomes aware of the issues that are going on in every department. And as he travels, he makes his way around the hospital, the refrain that he asks, the question that he asks, every department that he shows up, every department head, every nurse, the janitorial staff, he's meeting with them in the locker room, and he asks the same question of every person who is employed in the hospital and even the patients. How can I help? Those four words. Because he's looking to serve those who are in need, not shun and separate himself from them. Listen, I wonder what it would be like for your neighbors to hear you ask those four, word, those four words, that question. How can I help? What would, we look, what would it look like for the, the same-sex attracted individual in your class at school students for you to ask that question, how can I help? help or on your street how can I help listen while we would not affirm that particular lifestyle what we will not do is shun those people who are struggling with sin and the sickness of their hearts how can I help Listen, would you befriend those who are sick? Because chances are, listen, the reason that you're a Christian in this room this morning is because someone befriended you and yours. Whether it was a mom or a dad, an aunt or an uncle, a grandma, a grandpa, a co-worker, a neighbor, a friend, someone befriended you in your sickness. Why wouldn't you befriend someone in theirs? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, today, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus is indeed, as the old hymn says, a friend of sinners. And I, as one who wrestles with the flesh, thoughts and desires that are not honoring to you. I'm grateful that you befriended me. That you found me wallowing in lust and you set your love and affection upon me. Not because of anything that I had done. In fact, in spite of everything that I had done. And you chose to love me. You chose to save me. You chose to sanctify me. So God, may far be it from me that as one who has walked with you, sometimes more closely than others, but has walked with you now for over 20 years, look back upon those who are sick in their sin and isolate myself from and shun them. 
Father, may we as a church know what it means to insulate ourselves, but not isolate ourselves, to serve and not shun, because you are pursuing and befriending those that we would deem to be the most unclean among us. And those who seem to be squeaky clean. Father, may we not turn our backs in their hour of need. May we not set them on the curb and say, when your symptoms subside, you're welcome to come back in and enjoy the community. May we be a friend of sinners and continue to point people to this one who has befriended us. May we deal with sin. May we not coddle it, cuddle with it, cradle it. Father, may we recognize in a common humanity that it has the capacity to shatter the lives of those around us because it shattered our own in ways that we may not be brave enough even now to admit. And that we would be the greatest triage nurses on the planet because of our own experience with you. Be able to move towards those who are in need, saying, how can we help? Let us show you someone better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.